Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation. The battle in Iowa for the Democratic caucus in 2008 was perhaps the most titanic battle in the history of politics. To see who would win the first election in a half a century without an incumbent president or vice president running. In the one corner, you had Hillary Clinton, and the establishment wife, first lady of a former president. She had money. She had name ID. She had the former governor of the state working on her behalf in Iowa. In the other corner, you had John Edwards, the flaxen-haired former vice presidential nominee of the previous cycle in 2004, who had basically lived and camped out in the state where he had done pretty well in 2004 before he became John Kerry's uh, running mate. And then finally, you had the superstar first-term senator whose speech at the Democratic convention in 2004 had caused swooning in Democratic ranks unseen since Mario Cuomo's speech at the convention in 1984 or Ted Kennedy in 1980. The Democrats have been out of the White House for two terms. Now they had a chance to get back in, remove America from its wars that had gone sideways, repair a broken economy that was in the middle of a recession. There was also a two-thirds chance that this kickoff event in Iowa would lead to history, that it would be the beginning for the first African-American nominee of a major party or the first woman nominee of a major party. And if any of the top frontrunners won, Obama, Edwards, or Clinton, they'd be the first senator since John Kennedy to move directly from the Senate to the White House. Our whistle stop today is November 10th, 2007, and we're in Des Moines, Iowa. The Democrats have gathered for their annual Jefferson Jackson Day dinner, the chief fundraising event of the year, and the night is stuffed, stuffed with drama during this presidential contest. The Iowa precinct caucuses are less than two months away, jammed up in the beginning of the year just after New Year's due to a monkeying around with the calendar by other states, Iowa, maintaining its crucial place as the first contest in the long string of contests. Six of the Democratic candidates are there at the Jefferson Jackson Day dinner. Hillary Rodham Clinton, John Edwards, Senator Barack Obama, Senator Chris Dodd, Senator Joe Biden and Governor Bill Richardson of New Mexico. It was the night that history records that Barack Obama lifted off the launch pad to the presidency. We have a chance to bring the country together in a new majority to finally tackle problems that George Bush made far worse, but that had festered long before George Bush ever took office. Problems that we've talked about year after year, after year, after year. And that is why the same old Washington textbook campaigns just won't do in this election. That's why, that's why not answering questions, because we're afraid our answers won't be popular, just won't do. That's why telling the American people what we think they want to hear, instead of telling the American people what they need to hear, just won't do. 
Hey, Slate Magazine is turning 20 years old, and so as a part of its mission, we have this Whistle Stop podcast. I was asked to do a podcast about something that falls within the parenthesis of Slate's fine history. And in politics during that period, there have been a few flashpoint moments I could have stabbed at. Uh, flashpoint moments that are going to live on in history. We had the Bush v. Gore recount in the 2000 election. John McCain's 2000 campaign in New Hampshire, which you've already been had pressed upon your ears by me. It's also a chapter in the Whistle Stop book. Howard Dean's Scream of 2004 is another one of those signature campaign moments, also available in books near you. But clearly, the election of the first African-American president is the most historic presidential campaign news during Slate's reign upon the earth. That history started in Iowa, the Midwestern state, with a 96% Caucasian population, but it's the one that sent Barack Obama on his national rise. Now, we're going to take our first detour, which is before we return to the narrative about Obama and Iowa, and it's about the fallacy of the key moment. I've chosen the key moment, the Jefferson Jackson Day dinner. Everyone is going to choose that moment for the 2008 race and where it all began in Iowa, this fantastic, dramatic event. But as we've discussed before, key moments in politics sometimes simply provide an opportunity for people, a lot of them in the press, to identify a trend that has already been long underway and for journalists to proclaim those moments as turning points because we're always on the lookout for moments that are turning, but only until there's a public event that sort of allows us to stuff everything into that event do we claim the moment has turned, even though the material with which we are doing the stuffing has long been in existence. In fact, it's because it's been exi in existence that we are able to then select this moment as the turning point. And so for me, this revelation, which is maybe not such a big revelation, but it was for me in this very campaign in 2007, uh, when the Jefferson Jackson Day dinner became, even in real time, this moment over which everyone went crazy. My argument is that it was obvious that Obama was well on the rise in Iowa before he came to that famous dinner. And why do I think that? Because three days before the dinner, a reporter for Slate magazine named me was in a gymnasium uh, in Cedar Rapids next to the talented Michael Grunwald, then of the Washington Post, who is a policy reporter for Politico and the author of The New New Deal, which is about Obama's stimulus package in his first term. We both were there watching Barack Obama, as we had for weeks and months before. Uh, and here's uh, uh, how I began the story of that evening. Dateline, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I've seen Barack Obama's show. First of all, why am I quoting myself? Well, besides the glow that it gives me and the sense of fulfillment uh, and the fact that I'm uh, a deeply self-centered narcissist, uh, I thought I would drop in a little bit of Slate coverage in the course of this return to 2007, since we are here for this particular moment as a result of Slate's 20th anniversary. So here, here goes the podcaster quoting himself. Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I've seen Barack Obama's show. I've seen the crowds. I've seen the audacity. I've seen the hope. I knew what to expect Tuesday night at his event at Kirkwood Community College in Cedar Rapids, and yet, after it was over, I was still impressed. He was funny and passionate, and he connected with his big audience. When he left the stage, the room was on its feet and chanting with him. Nothing like that happened during the two days I followed Hillary Clinton. I'd just come off of two days covering Clinton in Iowa. 
Her performances were solid, and her audiences were enthusiastic, but they didn't interrupt her with applause the way they did with Obama. A talented candidate works the rhythm of an audience, taking it through a range of emotions, humor, passion, and anger. If the candidate does it right, the room feels more committed at the end of the event than during the opening jokes. That's what it was like when Obama spoke. Why isn't he killing her? asked a colleague after Obama's hour-long visit. It's the persistent question for this campaign. He wows the crowds, but lags in polls everywhere but Iowa. One answer may lie in a question... An Obama supporter asked the crowd before the senator arrived. Warming up the room, Linda Langston, a local politician, asked how many of the people there had never attended a caucus. It seemed like nearly half the room raised their hands. At the Clinton event, where the average age is at least 10 years older, every person I interviewed afterward offered a list of the candidates they'd supported in the caucuses during previous elections. This is the big question for the Obama campaign, which needs to do well in Iowa to survive. Can he lock in voters after they leave his rallies? Well, it is sterling prose. There's no doubt about it. But for me in that particular event, which was the culmination of having covered Obama in his many trips out to Iowa, it seemed like he was in command of his campaign, grooving with the audiences of Iowa and had been for some time. The field, we should step back here for a moment. We've described the main players, but remember, now that Obama has won, how dominating Hillary Clinton was supposed to be. I mean, she had $35 million in the bank before some of her rivals even had raised their first million dollars. She had the establishment. She had the name. She was commanding on the stump. And Obama was a one-term senator with no executive experience who gave long, boring speeches. And so... He had to find a way to get around her money raising. She grabbed up all the money in the kind of middle of the establishment of the party. She also just was looking and feeling and acting like the way you're supposed to run when you're a president and doing it pretty well. She wasn't totally winning the world, but she was running a, a perfectly fine campaign when this happened. And also, by the way, you had Senator Edwards, who was running a fine campaign himself. So the the challenge for the Obama campaign was to turn out those voters who raised their hands in that uh, event in Kirkwood. And that was essentially the holy grail for all Iowa candidacies, which is to grow the pie, create, find, build an electorate, not just get the people who've been there before. Those people were going to go to Clinton and Edwards. So Obama had to get around those complexities, and he had staked his entire campaign on Iowa early, the way, remember, Howard Dean had done in 2004. The beginning of the strategy process, they had put a major focus on Iowa. That's the opposite, say, of John McCain in 2000, who didn't run in Iowa at all, to put all his chips on New Hampshire. So the idea was how to expand the, the universe in Iowa, and if Obama could do that in Iowa, it wasn't just about winning the caucus. It was about enforcing his larger narrative, which was that he was going to be a, and this is a bit of a sloppy phrase, but I'm going to use it anyway, a kind of third-way candidate. He was going to bring people in from outside the process, people who didn't like the way Democrats and Republicans were were behaving. He was a change candidate. He was an outside-the-traditional-route candidate. If he could be successful in Iowa going around the structure of the Democratic Party as it existed and finding new voters and bringing them into the party, that was both a tactical success for him, but it was also a, a proof of his larger narrative. 
you'll remember Bernie Sanders tried a version of this, too, by saying he was going to launch a national movement. And that was fine until he couldn't launch his movement in states in the South, until he couldn't launch his movement in areas outside of those uh, liberal enclaves. So this was Obama offering that theory as the centerpiece of his campaign. The movement was going to get its first test in Iowa. It was basically Iowa or go home. Because Clinton was leading massively nationally, so they had to build it small and do well. His organizational challenge was to find those new voters and turn them out. And this is like, if you haven't had this flashback already, this is like what John Kennedy did in 1960, taking on the establishment of his own party, formidable challengers with his own party, with no experience doing this, or certainly not as much experience as the others who had run. Obama had even less than Kennedy, no war experience, no heroism that had been lauded on the pages of the, of the New Yorker. And Iowa for Obama was going to be like, let's say, West Virginia was for Kennedy. You need to own Iowa, which is what David Pluff, his campaign manager, kept telling him. And owning Iowa meant really organizationally going into all the small towns, going into the Republican areas. Axelrod, David Axelrod, his media strategist, uh, made a broader point that will remind you of Kennedy in his famous memo about the campaign broadly, not just Iowa, but in general. He said, Axelrod did, the campaign is a proving ground for strength. How you respond to the inevitable challenges you face will reveal much about your strength and preparedness for the job. So this, like Kennedy, he's building his resume while campaigning for the job. And so the challenge of turnout in Iowa was one of these tests. As Sue Dvorsky put it in the great podcast, Three Tickets, which is a wonderful history about the Iowa caucuses. She said, if Pope Francis and Mother Teresa had a love child, you'd still have to organize to get people out. Now, of course, if Pope Francis and Mother Teresa had a love child, that would be news. St. Mother Teresa, we should note, recently um, that news came upon us. Anyway, but we understand what Sue was saying. So at all of his stops, Obama at the end would say things like he would say to the audiences, you know, nobody thinks you're going to show up. And he would say, are you going to prove them wrong? I can't hear you. And then he'd say, are you going to prove them wrong? And then he'd go, how many of you still haven't decided whether you're going to participate? All right, you're the target. We're going after you guys. He would every time say, you know, there have been a lot of discussions among pundits because they don't think you're going to show up. You've got to show up. And everybody would go crazy. So this was his pitch at every rally was not just vote for me, but sign up. You've got to sign up. It's an organizational challenge in Iowa because the people have to turn out for and sit in a gymnasium for three hours in a somewhat in a more complicated democratic process where they vote over rounds. And anybody who doesn't get 15% of the assembled members in that caucus, those voters can then be redistributed to the other candidates. And so there's a round in which the supporters for the candidates who place first and second and third, or anyway, clear that 15% threshold, then go out and try and convince the supporter of the candidates who doesn't get 15%. So there's this tactical thing. So in order to build this turnout machine, you had to do all kinds of sucking up to voters. It wasn't just at the end of rallies that you had to ask them to participate in the process. You had to do it in onesies and twosies. A famous example of this is in 1988, Richard Gephardt purchased a porcelain dog for a woman who collected porcelain dogs in order to schmooze with her because she was one of these crucial linchpin voters that you, through her, you could get to lots more people. And so Senator Obama had to do the same thing. David Axelrod, in his book, Believer, recounts a, a time when they were flying in the campaign plane across Iowa and 
uh, Senator Obama made a call to an influential student leader who was in high school. Axelrod reports on the conversation this way. He heard Obama say, hey, this is Senator Barack Obama, and I'm calling because I really would like your support. And then Axelrod heard Obama listen for a moment and say, uh, yeah, sure. And then hanging up and handing the phone back to his aide, Robert Gibbs. Uh, and Obama said she, she said she was going to a class and asked that I could call her back later. So the future leader of the free world had been blown off by a 17-year-old kid. So th- when we think about the future of the Iowa caucus and its unrepresentative population, th- one of the many benefits of the Iowa caucus, of which I'm, I must say I'm a bit of a booster, is that it has a, a unique ability to put humility in the candidates and to keep them kind of tied low. And you can imagine how Obama needed that because he was a rock star. You go to Iowa normally and you're talking about 15, 20, 30 people in a coffee clutch in Cedar Rapids or uh, Sioux City. He was showing up to thousands of people. This was not, it had never happened like this as far as I can tell in the Iowa caucuses. He was showing up, but he wasn't actually that good at first. David Axelrod says he was bad for about six months. This had the makings of a huge expectations disaster. So on the one hand, he's a movie star. Uh, As David Axelrod put it, his production opened on Broadway under the brightest lights with a full battery of critics in attendance, eager to see if he could live up to his inflamed, enhanced billing. Now, this wasn't all a bummer for Obama. His star power made it possible to get Oprah to come for him at the end of the caucus fight. So, you know, he was able to pull in star power that helped him. But expectations were sky high, and he was kind of long-winded. He wasn't really in sync with the demands of the campaign where every word would be picked over. There's an example of this early in in Ames, Iowa, in February of 2007, not long after he'd announced Obama, was met by 5,000 people. And talking about the Iraq war, he said, We have seen over 3,000 lives of the bravest young Americans wasted. Wasted. No veteran's family wanted to hear that a death fighting for their country was wasted. By July of 2007, Obama was slipping in the polls and really wondering, in the national polls, and really wondering whether the 13 trips he'd taken to Iowa were worth it. And he called a meeting at Valerie Jarrett's apartment in New York, and it included an outside voice, Chris Edley, the dean of the Berkeley Law School, who, according to Axelrod in his account of this, berated the staff for not being responsive to the candidate. And reading about this in Axelrod's book is delicious, because you can tell, both explicitly and implicitly in the context of the book that basically Edley went around the room telling all of Obama's generals, the people who now are considered some of the greatest campaign strategists out there, that they were idiots who didn't know what they were doing. Axelrod shows a little relish having written his book after Obama was successfully elected first and then reelected, having a little delight um, at the strategy they basically kept continuing. Uh, But at this time, again, Why is this guy spending all his time in this state where it's 96% white? He's getting creamed in the national polls. And the strategists who do this for a living say, national polls don't matter. you got to build it piece by piece, especially when your name is Barack Hussein Obama and you're running against a very strong field. And stop listening to the cable pundits and pay attention to the dynamics of the race. And this couldn't be more and wouldn't be more important than all the early spade work that David Pluff did in building organizations in later Democratic contests. Because remember, Obama, despite winning Iowa, gets into a real close race with Clinton all the way to the end. 
And it's because he has organizations in those future states and had paid attention to the long game, not just swerving to the demands of the cable news cycle, but because he had his eye on the prize in just the way he was being criticized for not doing by critics. Because he had his eye on the prize, Obama was able to win. And there's a constant battle between campaign strategists who are trying to keep their plan in place and the donors and friends of the candidate who have thousands of ideas, mostly informed by their gut instincts, which haven't, you know, they're not professionals at this. Now, having said that, of course, there are plenty of professionals in politics who have wasted hundreds of millions of dollars to no good effect. So it's not like campaign strategists are all geniuses. The question is whether, like the press, campaign strategists operate in an environment closer to theoretical physics, where success comes rarely, or like baseball, where even a good hitter, you know, gets out seven out of 10 times, or six and a half out of 10 times. Anyway, one of these moments in July, when all the people, generals of the campaign were called in and told they were idiots. At the center of the Obama campaign was the debate with Hillary Clinton and John Edwards over the Iraq war. He was, Obama was a rock star, not just because of his spectacular convention speech in 2004, but he was anti-war before it was cool in the Democratic Party. And here's a bit from his famous speech in 2002, coming out against the war, and also then tagged on is a talk show appearance also from 2002. I don't oppose war in all circumstances. And when I look out over this crowd today, I know there is no shortage of patriots or patriotism. What I do oppose is a dumb war. Uh, us rushing headlong into a war unilaterally uh, was a mistake and may still be a mistake. If it has happened, then at that point, what the debate's really going to be about is what's our long-term commitment there? How much is it going to cost? What does it mean for us to rebuild Iraq? How do we stabilize and, and make sure that this country doesn't splinter into factions between the Shias and, and the Kurds and uh, the Sunnis. In 2016, Donald Trump has argued that he too was against the 2003 Iraq invasion. So, first of all, Donald Trump wasn't against the invasion. He said he was for it before the invasion started. So, not only was he for it versus Obama being against it, but even when Trump said he was against the war, which he later did after the war started and, and wasn't going as well in 2004, his comments were kind of offhanded and hedging. And the Obama speeches give us an example of what it's like to listen to a speech of a person who's actually against the war and who makes a case at length and puts all their chips on that position. So why does this matter? Well, the entire Obama strategy was built on the idea that, like Kennedy, he could manufacture stature, right, in the primaries. And that would make up for his shortcomings, the largest one being that he had never run anything in his life. So not only was he young, but he'd only really been a state senator and was a first-term senator. So what that speech showed, as they talked about it and, and returned back to it, was that he had judgment. He wasn't stuck in the old Washington ways. Youth had its advantages. And this is an argument that all candidates use, but the war was proof that Obama's outside of Washington thinking that his judgment was sound, and it was a concrete example that there was a better way than the one Clinton and Edwards were promising. Here's, by the way, Edwards on the war from 2002. My position is very clear. The time has come for decisive action to eliminate the threat posed by Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction. I'm a co-sponsor of the bipartisan resolution that's presently under consideration in the Senate. 
Saddam Hussein's regime is a grave threat to America and our allies. We know that he has chemical and biological weapons today, that he's used them in the past, and that he's doing everything he can to build more. Hillary Clinton, of course, had supported that war, too, for similar reasons. Her war vote for the speech was nuanced and caveated. She said she was strengthening Bush's hands in negotiations. She wasn't. She also was supporting the troops. But as nuanced as her vote, war vote speech was, didn't matter. By 2007, she, had, she was on the wrong side of the war, and that was unpopular. Edwards had a little moment during the campaign, just since we've heard from him, that is one of those uh, amusing detours that, in retrospect, um, feels like it has, I don't know, does it have more meaning or less meaning anyway? He had campaigned on poverty, and one of the lost facts about 2007-2008 in the Democratic Party is that Edwards was a constant promoter of the need to do more about poverty and people in poverty. Uh, And basically, when he pulled out of the race, having been replaced as the change candidate by Barack Obama, Obama promised to do more about poverty as a kind of condition for Edwards' support. Obama never returned to poverty with anything close to the passion that Edwards had brought to that issue on the campaign trail uh, as Obama finished his, um, as he finished his winning campaign, both in the primaries and then in the general. But anyway, even though Edwards was a champion for poverty and issues that get far too little focus, it was a moment in April of 2007 when he had his stylist flown into Dubuque to cut his hair for $400 that became a great diversion for his campaign. And it was one of those moments where, in addition to the video of Edwards prepping his hair for two minutes, it became known that uh, Joseph Tourneau, who was his stylist, had been flown all over the place to give Edwards a haircut. And this kind of, all candidates are vain, but this kind of hard data about Edwards' vanity was a distraction to his campaign. So Obama's claim was that while he might not have Clinton's experience, he had the judgment. And the debate came into the sharpest focus, of course, when Clinton released her famous 3 a.m. phone call ad. It's 3 a.m. and your children are safe and asleep. But there's a phone in the White House and it's ringing. Something's happening in the world. Your vote will decide who answers that call. Whether it's someone who already knows the world's leaders, knows the military, someone tested and ready to lead in a dangerous world. It's 3 a.m. and your children are safe and asleep. Who do you want answering the phone? I'm Hillary Clinton and I approve this message. The idea was that the presidency was dangerous and that uh, you wanted somebody with experience in the chair. The problem is that on a conference call promoting the ad, Clinton's aides weren't able to come up with an example of how she in her life uh, had handled any emergency situation. And the Obama team, again, going on this comparison between experience and judgment, the Obama team, David Plouffe said, Senator Clinton had her red phone moment. And she had it in 2002. He's referring to Iraq. Plouffe said it was on the Iraq war that she had her red phone moment. And she and John McCain and and George Bush all gave the wrong answer. He added that this is about what you say when you answer the phone, what kind of judgment you demonstrate. Well, there you go. Ding, 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 ding. And then the the Obama campaign also put out their own ad from uh, General McPeak, Tony McPeak, who praised Obama by saying he's our best hope of restoring our security and standing in today's world. The old Washington hands have let us down. We need a new leader to lift America. 
Axelrod called the remedy, this is a remedy, not a replica strategy, which he had learned about in all of his years in politics. And Obama was the cleanest break from Bush. Clinton was not. She'd voted for his war. This was the crystallizing issue, in addition to the tactics we've talked about. The Iraq war and Obama's judgment and separation on it was the clearest break on issue terms that they were fighting about in Iowa. And here's how Chris Matthews would put it the night of the Iowa caucuses. If she's seeking the nomination of a party insistent on change, how does she play rear guard in defending her own vote to authorize the war in Iraq? Well, that- I don't get the argument. At this stage in the campaign, as summer grew into fall, Obama continued to press his advantage on foreign policy. So it's not just that he'd gotten the right view on the Iraq war, but In debates, Clinton and in speeches, Obama said two things, that he would meet with dictators in Venezuela and Iran, and also that if he had actionable intelligence in a place like Pakistan, he would go after Osama bin Laden, even if he didn't get the okay from the Pakistani government. Now, Clinton said that was reckless to make those kinds of promises out loud. She said she wouldn't give the leaders of a foreign adversary like Venezuela and Iran the public relations benefit of such a meeting that the, of the kind that, that Obama was talking about. And it got pretty uh, ugly in this back and forth. Obama said, we can't afford a politics that is all about terrorism and ripping people down rather than lifting a country up. We can't afford a politics based on fear that leaves politicians to think the only way they can look tough on national security is to vote and act and talk just like George W. Bush. Yes, he did just compare Hillary Clinton to George W. Bush on this question of commander-in-chief and being more open to diplomacy than the kind of saber-rattling, warlike posture that Clinton had taken in supporting Bush and that Bush, the great uh, villain of the Democratic Party, the way he was behaving. We should take a little detour here and make an important point about hypothetical questions in campaigns. This is a pet peeve of mine. But the reason they were able to have this conversation is that Obama had played on two hypothetical questions. He played on a third, which is that he'd never used nuclear weapons in Afghanistan and Pakistan. So Biden and Hillary Clinton said this was naive, that he shouldn't play and answer hypothetical questions. Senator Chris Dodd said Obama was confusing and confused. And it was interesting that after a while, the hypotheticals started to get to sort of pile up on each other so that he said that he would go into Afghanistan, even if President uh, Musharraf didn't give his, his OK. But that might very well have unleashed a backlash against Musharraf that would have would have caused a chaos in Pakistan, perhaps an overthrow by Al Qaeda in Pakistan, which would have put nukes in the hands of terrorists. And that led to a previous hypothetical that Obama had entertained in 2004. He'd said he he would seriously consider launching missiles into Pakistan as a preemptive attack if the wrong kind of people came to power in Pakistan, which was a nuclear power. So it wasn't like it was self-evident that Obama's position, that he would negotiate with terror, that he would negotiate with leaders of adversary countries, that he would take action on intelligence regardless of the fact that Pakistan, which was an ally, might not know about it. It wasn't like these were seen as total slam dunks. On the other hand, Actually, they were used as knocks against him. And his argument was, no, I'm going to keep taking these positions. My argument is that I'm different than the normal Washington establishment. And what better way to prove it than this? But he couldn't have done that if he hadn't played on hypotheticals, which no other candidate answers hypothetical questions. It's like some rule. And it's a ridiculous rule. And Hillary Clinton during the campaign said one of the jobs of the president is being very reasoned in approaching these issues. She didn't want to answer a question about sending ground troops to Darfur. And I don't think it's useful to be talking in these kinds of 
abstract hypothetical terms. The reason this is so nonsensical is that candidates, these kinds of questions show us how candidates' minds work. It gives us a glimpse at their capacity for imagination to assess their ability to survey the world and understand the landscape before them. And campaign positions may come and go, but hypotheticals let us test the habits of mind inside a candidate. And oh, by the way, the entire process of electing a president is a hypothetical process. We have to imagine what a candidate would be, uh, how they would behave in office. So it's only under, you know, it's only reasonable to ask that they imagine a few things themselves. And by the way, also hypothetical questions are a fundamental part of being president. You need to know how to pose them to your colleagues, and then uh, you need to have a set of skills to think through the, as they say in the cliche of the day, second and third order effects. We need to see that. We need to see if a candidate has a capacity for doing that. So it's not only useful to have hypothetical questions because they excavate something deeper down in the candidates about the way their minds work, but it's also necessary because it's a skill the actual candidates need to have. Oh, it drives me crazy that there's some kind of collusion among everybody that, that hypothetical questions are somehow out of bounds. Anyway, enough on that nonsense. The one other point we should obviously point out is that Obama was telling the truth when he said he would act on intelligence even without telling the Pakistani government, because that's exactly precisely what he did in office. The knock against Obama was not only that he was naive about foreign policy, but that basically he was just a fresh-faced storyteller. And Bill Clinton hit the campaign trail. And I remember he used to say that voting for Obama was a big roll of the dice. In other words, a huge problem might happen if you took this gamble on Obama. It was essentially a mild scare tactic. But more entertainingly, Bill Clinton used to say, look, I know how to tell a good story. And I come from a place with a long line of storytellers. And he would sort of compliment Obama on his ability to tell stories and win over a crowd in the moment. But he then said, don't be bamboozled by that. Don't be taken in by a person's ability to tell a good story, because, you know, that doesn't matter when it comes to being president. According to John Heilman and Mark Halperin, the authors of Game Change, uh, chronicling this entire election, Clinton would leave the debate stage after debating with Obama and say, what an asshole, <laughs> using what the authors say is her favorite profanity. Am I the only one who sees the arrogance? Does that not bother people? So the Clinton team kept playing on this idea of lack of experience. And yes, yes, he may be fun to listen to, but come on, it's what they used to call time to pick a president. That was, in fact, their slogan, big challenges, real solutions, time to pick a president. The idea was that Clinton has experience and that Obama just has nice speeches. Of course, the way Obama responded to this notion of experience was by trying to encase Clinton in the baby boomer legacy and that what she called experience, he was calling the old way of doing things. He was the change candidate. He tried to use her argument for doing things the old way when she referred to time to pick a president. The presidential model she was putting forward was the model of the old way. He was the new way. The problem is this was only working in Iowa. And in the fall of 2007, he was still well behind in national polling. And an ABC poll in September showed Obama down 33 points nationally. And the donors to the Obama campaign were getting nervous. So the Obama folks flew the donors out to Iowa and showed them around the state to basically say, look, we're building an organization across the state. We're building something here that will give him ballast that will be a huge blow to Clinton. We're building out an organization in the rest of the country, but just relax. We know what we're doing. Don't pay attention to the national polls. Hang with us. Um, and what they were building in Iowa was an organization that was built 
not only on a Pluff's strategy, but also obviously the community organizing model that Obama had learned and employed early in his career. So Iowa was a test case, not only for theory, but again, it was an echo of his larger argument, which was that he was going to build a crusade out of the idea of change and bind the electorate to that crusade nationally in the way he was trying to do it in Iowa. So this is the movement, basically, that Bernie Sanders tried to offer in 2016. He just didn't build the movement in the way that Obama did in 2008. The other thing Obama did in the fall, in addition to settling the fears of what uh, Pluff and the other Obama insiders call the bedwetters, in the fall of 2007, he also sharpened his message. They came up with a new slogan, which was change we can believe in. In other words, you can't believe Hillary Clinton. So if you wonder why Hillary Clinton is not seen as trustworthy, uh, she contributes to that, and her campaigns have contributed to that view, and her husband's presidency contributes to that view. But in part, it is also true that the most popular Democratic candidate of the last 12 years made that a centerpiece of his campaign, that she was untrustworthy. And the reason they did this is because Clinton was kind of trying to fuzzy up the change message, that in the fall of 2007, she was getting into this idea that she was about change and that she could actually deliver change and that Obama was just about rhetorical change and basically trying to make it a fight about experience versus rhetoric and have people accept the predicate, which is that they were both agents of change. So this is a genius strategy we see all the time, which is that campaigns will try to get you in a fight sometimes by even telling a deliberate falsehood that engages you in a fight where in order for the fight to take place... You have to affirm a predicate that some people might not agree with at all. So if a debate is between Clinton and Obama about which style of change is better, then embedded in that debate is the idea that both are trying to bring change to Washington. But the premise of the Obama campaign was that Clinton was not able to bring change, regardless of whichever method she used. And so it became imperative. Axelrod whipped out another one of those memos saying that their task was to, quote, create a distinct and sustained contrast in all of our communications. Barack Obama is the only authentic remedy to what ails Washington and stands in the way of progress. Hillary Clinton is a prescription for more of the same, meaning that our shared goals will once again be frustrated by Washington's failed politics. To drive home this point, Obama took to the pages of the New York Times. And in it, he claimed Clinton was being less than truthful about her positions, that she was acting like a Republican on foreign policy, that she was too divisive to win a general election. And he said, we have to make these distinctions clearer, and I will not shy away from doing that. Well, this is what's called telegraphing a punch. It's funny to listen to Dan Pfeiffer on his uh, podcast, Keeping It 1600. He referred to this moment in passing as he was making a criticism about the press. He said, And people ask me sometimes about why campaigns share their strategies with reporters on the front page of the New York Times. Like, why in the world would Obama tell Clinton he was coming after her? In part, they do this because the press then writes lots of Obama is getting tougher stories, which means that he's getting tougher stories, both just in sheer number, get the message across, but they also then maybe don't necessarily require Obama to actually get tougher. It just spreads the ideas that he's being tougher. And there was, of course, a balance here because Obama was saying he wasn't going to run the old style politics. But in order to get tougher, he needed to engage in precisely the kinds of tactics that represented the old style of politics. But also you want it to be in the New York Times front page that you're getting tougher because that's what you're donors and your smarty pants law school friends have been telling you to do. You know, they call up with thousands of pieces of advice. Many people lack the act of restraint, which would keep them from sending lots of bad advice to a candidate. 
And so candidates are having to manage their friends as much as they're having to manage a campaign. Basically, the Obama campaign is playing on the press's love of process stories and turning point stories. So now everybody's like, aha, we're getting to see the tougher Obama. So what's amusing about this, of course, is the press played exactly into Obama's hands. So at the next debate, Brian Williams asked Obama about the Times story right away. And so then Obama, who's got to keep this balance between being the tough guy who's going to show contrasts and being the above it all, no you know, no old ways of politics. His answer was, I think some of this stuff gets overhyped. Well, Senator, it's getting overhyped because your team hyped it. Anyway, this is the balance between being the hope and change candidate and not playing the old politics and then telling everybody on the front page of the New York Times that you're going to play the old style of politics. My most acute memory of this was riding with Obama on a train through Pennsylvania in April of the following year. So he's still in a cut and thrust fight with Clinton. It's getting really hot and heavy. And he gives a speech about huge chunk of the speech. It feels like the whole speech, but it couldn't have been. But like half the speech or the major thrust of the speech was the idea that he was going to get away from the divisive politics of Clinton, the tit for tat politics, he called it, and the Clinton way of tearing down your opponent. And on and on and on he went about how bad it was that Clinton would tear down the opponents. And this was the old way. And Washington was never going to get better if you participated in that kind of behavior. And since the earth cooled, no one had been involved in tit for tat politics like Clinton. And that was why we were headed towards more sadness and unhappiness in the world. Meanwhile, almost simultaneously, with the speech being given by the candidate out on the stump in Pennsylvania, the Obama campaign was holding a conference call saying that Hillary Clinton should not be commander-in-chief, that she was disqualified from the office simply because she had exaggerated a story about visiting Bosnia and being under sniper fire. So that wasn't just tit-for-tat politics. It was the most extreme version of of attack that had happened in the campaign, which was to take a gaffe and an admitted exaggeration and a crazy thing for Clinton to say, and then turn it into the single disqualifying event of a candidacy. This is a guy, a candidate and a president, who had criticized the press and the political class for taking single events and blowing them out of proportion. And here they were having a conference call which was not titled this, but could have been, which was, watch us blow out of proportion this thing that Hillary Clinton said. Moreover, in the previous debate, Obama had expressly said that Clinton should get a pass on this question of the Bosnian snipers. I think Senator Clinton deserves, you know, the right to make some errors once in a while. I think what's important is to make sure that we don't get so obsessed with gaffes that we lose sight of the fact that this is a defining moment in our history. For us to be obsessed with this... These kinds of errors, I think, is a mistake. And that's not what our campaign has been about, period. Close quote from the candidate. Meanwhile, on a conference call, the candidate's campaign is basically saying, please blow this mistake out of proportion. So this is called politics. It's what naturally happens. But it's a little something when the candidate is running against this very thing and doing it himself in such a cinematic way. Anyway, back from April 2008 to October 2007. At this point, just a week before the Jefferson Jackson Day dinner, the Democratic candidates had a debate at Drexel University in Philadelphia. And it was basically a gang up on Clinton night. Uh, Obama was a little bit sluggish at first, but then he made the case that electing Hillary Clinton would make it impossible to change Washington because Republicans were already conditioned to having debates with her. But the opening for everybody's campaign, but most particularly for Senator Obama's, was when Clinton made a huge unforced error. 
And I remember this moment vividly, and I mention that only because there's a difference when everybody gathers around some moment and diagnoses the moment, and everybody sort of agrees with it. That's how conventional wisdom is created. But I definitely remember the fresh smack of discovery when this happened. So they'd all been beating up on Clinton all night about her candor. In fact, she basically didn't shoot straight. She didn't release records from her husband's administration or plans for Social Security. Were She was saying one thing on the stump and other things to, to voters in the audiences. Um, so they prepared the ground through the whole debate. Then, after having prepared the ground, Clinton inhabited the form of what her opponents had been describing. So she was asked if she supported the idea of giving driver's license to illegal immigrants, as the New York governor at the time, Elliot Spitzer, had proposed. And she basically ducked the question at first and then seemed to be both for and against the ideas. And her opponents, of course, noticed that she was giving two different answers in such a short period of time which is precisely what they had said she would do in more broad terms during the beginning of the debate. So Edwards wouldn't let it go. Unless I missed something, he said. Senator Clinton said two different things in the course of about two minutes. And I think this is a real issue for the country. And Senator Obama, of course, nodded vigorously. And Williams asked him why. And, And Senator Obama said, I was confused on Senator Clinton's answer. I can't tell whether she was for it or against it. So here's what we wrote in, uh, or what I wrote in Slate at the time. The question going into Tuesday night's debate was whether John Edwards or Barack Obama would really take on Hillary Clinton. They both did. But if Hillary Clinton was harmed politically, it was her own doing. Obama and Edwards consistently raised questions about her character and forthrightness, and then she gave answers that helped them make their case. Afterwards, the Clinton team produced an ad called, uh, or a, a web ad called The Politics of Pylon with intercut images of the other candidates attacking Hillary at the debate, and it was set to the music of Mozart's uh, Marriage of Figaro. And then the day after that, in a speech to her alma mater, Wellesley College, Clinton noted that the school had, quote, prepared me to compete in the all-boys club of presidential politics. So the idea that Clinton's two sides' response on the driver's license issue was just sexism, that the the concern over her answer was just about sexism and not the fact that she'd given two answers, was a kind of a weak response. And um, everybody, the press basically let Clinton have it. And Obama went after her as well. I mean, didn't go well. Anyway, on the Today Show, he was asked about this. And he said, one of the things that she suggested why she should be elected is because she's been playing in this rough and tumble stage. So it doesn't make sense for her after running that way for eight months, the first time that people start challenging her point of view, that suddenly she backs off and says, don't pick on me. Fair enough. So when the Democratic Party regulars arrived at that Jefferson Jackson Day dinner that we started our narrative with, what they were witnessing was a campaign in which Clinton and Obama were fighting for the mantle of change. They were fighting in starker terms than they had been before. It had moved to a new level. So the dinner is not just about giving speeches. It's an organization. It's an act of organizational strength. And Obama had planned a blowout demonstration of this thing that he had been building quietly and patiently all across Iowa. And it would conclude with a sort of North Korean style show of audience force. On the day of the Jefferson Jackson dinner, Obama had scheduled a concert by John Legend, and then he, Obama, marched and danced with about 4,000 of his supporters all the way to the Old Veterans Auditorium. Reporters were at the event from all over the world, and Obama was the final speaker. Clinton had spoken right before, and she'd done in her speech what was driving the Obama people crazy. 
She was trying to steal that change message. Here she is. We have a war to end. We have an economy to revive. We have 47 million Americans to ensure. We have an energy crisis to solve. We have a homeland to protect. We have alliances to rebuild. And we have a world to lead. So we are ready for change. Wait, there's that expression. She's doing her best Barack Obama. But then from the change message, she puts the shiv in. You know what? Change, change is just a word if you don't have the strength and experience to make it happen. No, she didn't. We, we must nominate a nominee who's been tested and elect a president who is ready to lead on day one. There it is. He can't deliver change because it's all rhetoric. And it ain't worth anything in real terms. So Obama took the stage and gave a speech that was, I mean, it was a rhetorical exercise. So in a sense, uh, it was affirming what she had charged. The problem was, as an act of politics, he'd memorized the speech. He'd worked it. It was all that was winning him that praise in Iowa and those big crowds and that connection. And also, it was a demonstration in real time of his ability to wow a crowd and get people to march. It was the enthusiasm that his entire strategy was based on, therefore display in front of all of these reporters. I will never forget that the only reason that I'm standing here today is because... Somebody, somewhere, stood up for me when it was risky. Stood up when it was hard. Stood up when it wasn't popular. And because that somebody stood up, a few more stood up. And then a few thousand stood up. And then a few million stood up. And standing up with courage and clear purpose they somehow managed to change the world that's why i'm running iowa to give our children and grandchildren the same chances somebody gave me that's why i'm running democrats to keep the american dream alive for those who still hunger for opportunity who still thirst for equality that's why I'm asking you to stand with me. That's why I'm asking you to caucus for me. That's why I'm asking you to stop settling for what the cynics say we have to accept. In this election, in this moment, let us reach for what we know is possible. A nation healed, a world repaired, an America that believes again. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. That final chant was one that would end up at almost all rallies till the end of the campaign. So one half of the audience said fired up and held up red signs. And then the other half of the audience said ready to go and they held up blue signs. It was an organizational show of strength. The Clinton team could only spin about the tactics, according to uh, 
Heilman and Halpern's game change. Our people look like caucus goers and his people look like they're 18, Mandy Grunwald said, adding dismissively. Penn said they look like Facebook. That's Mark Penn. And Penn chimed in, only a few of their people look like they could vote in any state. So the Obama team took the speech and the rally behind it and basically used that as their focal point for the next eight weeks in the Iowa caucuses. He'd give the same speech. He'd use that sense of snowball rolling. And while he was doing that, Clinton was stumbling. There was a planted question gaffe that happened at one of her events that I was at where a young woman asked about global warming. Turns out the woman had been prompted to do so by her campaign, by the Clinton campaign. This, of course, went back to questions of transparency and not sort of playing things straight with the Clinton campaign. Then the Clinton campaign released an attack on Obama about an essay he'd written when he was four or five years old in which he titled the essay, I Want to Be President. The point was that Obama had been more ambitious than he pretended to be. But I mean, come now. It was pretty much one of the silliest attacks in that I've ever seen in politics. And when you think about the Clinton campaign in 2016, where there have been very few gaffes that have not been by the candidate herself, it's a real difference, 2016 Clinton world versus 2008, in which there was infighting in public and behind the scenes and that kind of, you know, press release. The problems Clinton has had in 2016 are that she has created, but her campaign has not created. So anyway, it comes to be the 3rd of January caucus night. Barack Obama has a blowout win. He didn't just win, he won with 37.6% of the precinct equivalents, which, anyway, 37.6 went to Obama, 29.7 to Edwards, 29.5 to Clinton. So Clinton essentially came in third. And here was Barack Obama that night. Thank you. 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 Thank you, Iowa. Yo, they said, they said, they said this day would never come. They said our sights were set too high. They said this country was too divided, too disillusioned to ever come together around a common purpose. But on this January night, at this defining moment in history, you have done what the cynics said we couldn't do. The coverage that night was historic. And in Democratic quarters, when you listen to people, columnists talk about it, in retrospect, listening to them, you just, the the cake was baked. Like, just in terms of seeing Obama as this transformational figure. Here's Gene Robinson of The Washington Post. I was in my teens when Bobby Kennedy was running for the presidency, and there was something about Obama that has, that uh, that captures some of that feeling, I think, the enormous outpouring of of hope that he kind of, uh, kind of inspires. You know, this was not a narrow victory tonight by Obama. I mean, his, his margin over Hillary Clinton as of now is nine points that that's the same as Huckabee's margin over Romney so this is pretty much a thumping and here's Rachel Maddow of MSNBC 
As an American, it feels great to have a totally viable black candidate win Iowa, whether he's a Democrat or a Republican. That's the country I want to live in where that's possible. And I think that a lot of people are feeling that emotion about good, feeling good about the country because of that. On January 3rd, 2008, 240,000 Iowans had turned out for the precinct caucuses. The previous caucus in 2004 had set a record at 124,000. Clinton, Edwards, and Obama had all brought out, they'd all increased the pie. They'd all done what Obama was trying to do, but... And oh, by the way, that night, 100,000 turned out for the Republicans on the other side. But what Obama had done that the others had not done is just turn out more. He'd found about 80, 80 to 90,000 more people. We're used to the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary killing candidates who don't meet expectations. Or in the case of Clinton in 92 in New Hampshire, he exceeded expectations, but he came in second. Here, Obama had high expectations going into the vote based on the polling around the voting time, and he exceeded them. That's not that often that that happens. McCain, 2000 in New Hampshire, did that too. And so in Hillary Clinton, on the other hand, the expectations clobbered her. She became the sort of Howard Dean of that year's Iowa contest, the frontrunner who was trounced. Of course, she hadn't been the frontrunner going right into the polling, but still. And John Edwards would take a pounding because he was expected to have done better, and he didn't have the kind of staying power that Clinton would have to participate in future contests. Obama had basically stolen his change message from him. This victory in Iowa was an affirmation of Obama and his model. Campaigns promised to bring new people into the process. Democrats promised that a lot, but Obama had actually done that. That was his argument for the general election. So here he had field tested it and it had worked out. Despite its importance, the only three winners uh, of the Iowa caucus have gone on to win the presidency. So the enduring legacy of the Obama victory is that a candidate, while they can't sneak up on the process the way Jimmy Carter did, what Obama did, and the reason it's hard to replicate, is he kind of did it subtly. He stayed kind of occluded behind the front runner and then emerged at the end. And largely, Obama was occluded because the national polls were so drastic for him. He was losing by so much. So yeah, he might be doing well in Iowa, but he'd just become the pet rock candidate of Iowa and then lose everywhere else. So that helped keep expectations low. But essentially what Obama did was, and as one catchy phrase puts it for how to run in Iowa, organize, 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 and then get hot at the end. He had done that. He had organized, and then the JJ dinner, as it is known, created that hotness for him. But the hotness wouldn't have mattered if he hadn't organized. So Iowa became, for Barack Obama, what West Virginia roughly was for Jack Kennedy. It was a proving ground that affirmed the central message of his candidacy and wiped away a lot of doubts. He was a young senator with a funny name whose middle name was Hussein, the last name of America's most recent enemy. And nevertheless, he was able to win over the lily-white voters of Iowa. He'd proved in his campaign that he could build a thing, execute that thing, and come out on top. Now, this wouldn't be the end of the race, of course. Hillary Clinton would make an upset victory in New Hampshire, and then they would slog it out for several months more. But Iowa could never be taken away from him. And the campaign that it launched, or the campaign narrative that it launched, became what Axelrod had hoped essentially proof that he was fit for the presidency. And here then later in the campaign is Bill Clinton, who had been such a rival of Senator Obama when Obama was running against his wife. Here's what Clinton said. If you have any doubt about Senator Obama's ability to be the chief executive, this being said by a former president, just look at all of you. He has executed this campaign. He can be the chief executor of good intentions. 
that last little bit either works or doesn't work for you. But the central argument is experience experience. He's run an amazing campaign. He'll be able to handle the presidency. Nowhere was that more true and more necessary to prove than in Iowa. On the caucus victory night speech, Obama spoke to those organizers who had put him over the top. He knew from organizing. In 2016, we have the first marketer candidate, a candidate who is skilled at one of the key attributes of running a campaign. Well, Obama in 2008 was the first organizer candidate, kind of. Gary Hart had run McGovern's campaign in 72, so he knew about organizing. But Barack Obama had started out as a community organizer. And he had community organized, of course, with the help of his staff, Iowa. And that allowed him to grow the pie, which most people thought was politically impossible. And so at that victory night speech on the night of the Iowa caucus, Obama looked ahead to a moment in the future that is now kind of coming up on him in our present day. I know how hard it is. It comes with little sleep, little pay, and a lot of sacrifice. There are days of disappointment, but sometimes, just sometimes, there are nights like this. A night, a night that years from now, when we've made the changes we believe in, when more families can afford to see a doctor, when our children, when Malia and Sasha and your children inherit a planet that's a little cleaner and safer, when the world sees America differently, and America sees itself as a nation less divided and more united. You'll be able to look back with pride and say that this was the moment when it all began. We'd love to hear what you think of the old Whistle Stop podcast. Send us an email at whistlestop at slate.com or even better, leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word and uh, makes us feel good. That's for sure in these dark days. Head over to the iTunes uh, store and uh, and do so. Our producer for the Whistlestop podcast is Jocelyn Frank. Our executive producer of Panoply Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And our chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Whistlestop is a part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistlestop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who brings hope with him, also change, and is constantly fired up and ready to go. For the Whistle Stop Podcast, I'm John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation and author of Whistle Stop, New York Times bestselling book, which has been known to keep them warm in Decorah, Iowa on cold winter's nights, is more artistically viable than the butter cow at the Iowa State Fair, and has its own wine pairing at Luca in Des Moines. For Whistle Stop, I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. I'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>